You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. Here we go. I have a bad feeling about this. Follow me, boys! You're not shinies anymore. Go, go, go! Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Clone Wars Strikes Back. This is the podcast where we go back and celebrate the six, or actually, I guess we can now say seven-year history of the Emmy Award-winning animated series Star Wars The Clone Wars by discussing each and every episode and episode arc. It is it is seven years now, I think, you know, because we can, we can count the Bad Badge arc that uh, from, from Celebration. That came out this year. It's keeping the legacy going. Cannot complain about that. We got a great show for you guys this week. We'll be talking about the Darth Maul arc from season five plus James Arnold Taylor. That's right. Obi-Wan Kenobi himself. We sat down with him, uh, not too long ago and we'll be playing that interview for you guys right here, right now. We're well in just a few moments. First introductions are in order. My name is Dominic and joining me as he always does is my good friend and co-host Kieran. Kieran, how are you this week? I'm doing fantastically well, Dominic. I am now two exams down, and I've got one to go. I finish up on Tuesday, and I I cannot wait to be done, and so the summer holidays can then start. But I also can't wait to really get invested in, in talking about these episodes in particular, the Darth Maul arc of Season 5. It's certainly one of the more iconic ones of the series, and, well... I mean, you can't get much better to have someone like James Arnold Taylor to discuss a little bit about it and a little bit about Obi-Wan Kenobi in general. It's yeah. going to be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's jump right into that. This is our conversation with James Arnold Taylor. All right, so we are so excited right now to be joined by the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, Plo Koon, and so many other great characters from Star Wars The Clone Wars. Welcome to The Clone Wars Strikes Back, Mr. James Arnold Taylor. James, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it is my pleasure to be here. You know, thank you. That's a very nice introduction. I'm always kind of humbled by the uh, voices in the all of the list of credits. I always go, Wow. What a cool job I have. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Yeah, is is that kind of surprising sometimes to to look at Star Wars and to see these characters and go, "Oh yeah, I I'm that yeah. guy. I'm that guy." <laughs> it is. It's very yeah, it's it's humbling and it's surprising and it's also at the same time it was all a part of my plan growing up as a kid to <laughs> be involved in these things and to want to be involved in them, but uh, to actually achieve it is another another thing entirely. So it's it's a great honor. Yes, and you also we just got back just a few weeks ago from Star Wars Celebration Anaheim, and you were also in addition to representing the Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels to a certain extent, you were also hosting mm-hmm. the, uh, the the main stage at at that convention. Do you have yeah. any Do you have any uh, favorite moments from from that event? <laughs> Wow, we had uh, we had a lot going on on that stage. This was my second time hosting that yeah. stage for a celebration, 
And I think it was the best ever. I think everybody, you know, always wants to say that with every event after they've done it. But this one truly was so great. There was so many yeah. exciting moments from, you know, J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy bringing out the new cast and showing in the new trailer that we all know and love now. Uh, to BB-8 being there uh, and just fascinating all of us uh, literally with this technology that these droid builders accomplished. And then you take it over to the side where I actually got to host all these fantastic shows on that stage and interview some of my my friends and people that I'm just a huge fan of myself, from Mark Hamill to Carrie Fisher and Ian McDermott, Anthony Daniels, Ray Park, Billy D. Williams. <laughs> we had the Clone Wars cast up there. We had uh, we played Feud of the Force, yeah, which was that, a, a game show that was awesome. That and was... the dark side kicked the butts <laughs> of the light side. I was so so uh, <laughs> yeah. That that surprised. was one of those yeah. That was one of those sleeper events, right? Like it was it was not the, the main so. stage, but yeah. it was it was so much fun to be there and and. And you guys were, were so hilarious on stage. You, you can tell that everybody up there was having a lot of fun. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. And, yeah, I do agree. I, it's funny you say that. You use the exact same phrase I did. I said it was the sleeper <laughs> event of of the whole thing because it was one that, you know, I mean, I think if most people knew what was going on, they would have been there. And then they watch the video later and they go, oh, my gosh, that looked like fun because it was. I mean, it was just all of us just being goofy. And, and you also got really, I think, the best view into what it was like on the Clone Wars when oh, we would really? do an episode oh. <laughs> because that's essentially what we did. Uh, we just got to play together and read scripts and talk Star Wars and joke around and give each other a bad time <laughs> as well as create what I think was some of the most innovative television as well as animation uh, on on TV over the last decade. I mean I think that people will look back and they'll ask young filmmakers, well, what inspired you? And Clone Wars will be one of those shows that people will say I was inspired by that because it's important. It's really important in the world of Star Wars, but it's also important in what they were able to accomplish as, as an animated show and as a drama on, yeah. on a world full of you know, slapstick comedies and weird things I don't even understand that are playing on Cartoon <laughs> Network now. So, you know, so yeah. you'll get, it was a great honor. Yeah, you'll get no arguments from us on that. Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, exactly. And it's, it's great of you to say that, James, because me and Dominic ourselves, I think we are symptomatic, really, of that generation of Clone Wars fans. I mean, we've grown up with mm -hmm. the prequels, but it's really the Clone Wars that has rekindled fans endearment to the star wars saga and of course you yourself james were very very fortunate enough to be able to actually voice one of the most renowned and popular star wars characters in the star wars universe every time i go on starwars.com and it's the this is madness tournament obi-wan kenobi's <laughs> usually up there with the semi-finals and the final we got to the final this time Bested by Vader, but, you know, Vader's up there as well. So, Well, he uh, won the year before, right? Yeah. And so Vader had his revenge. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, Obi-Wan. And, and last year really kind of was the year of Obi-Wan, uh, certainly for me. Uh, it was cool. He won. He won the This Is Madness last year. But he was also um, – I was graced with some awards for my work in Clone Wars and uh, fan favorites from audiences as well as other things from uh, different uh, internet sites and, and voiceover awards, and that was really cool. And then just there was just kind of this resurgence of the love of the prequel Obi-Wan and the Clone Wars Obi-Wan, and I thought that was really fantastic uh, because it is a character that – lives throughout all of these films and goes really deep and sometimes is the brunt of 
of the blame and (laughs) you know uh dave filoni is no stranger to giving me a bad time about (laughs) obi-wan hey should have finished the job leaves him on there you know he always (laughs) always give me a bad time but um you know he's a really important character he's he's an amazing character and on clone wars we got to actually play him and go deeper with him than any actor has ever really been able to do and and more dialogue and and parts to play than ever before. And so it was a true honor to get to do it, but it was also a great honor for me as a fan of Star Wars, as a fan of this character to do. So um, I do still pinch myself daily. Go, <laughs> wow, I've been a part of something really special, I think. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, you know, just so many different, different stories that we've gotten with Obi-Wan, especially on the Clone Wars from various explorations of his past, you know, with all the stuff with Satine to, or even kind of bringing up some old emo- emotions with Darth Maul and his relationship yeah. with Anakin was explored in such a, such a different and, and interesting way. And uh, for you, is there one story or a couple of stories that really stand out as shocking or compelling that, that really focused in on Obi-Wan from the Clone Wars? Oh, that's a good question. See, a lot of times people will ask me, you know, was, was there a favorite? But I like the spin you gave it there of <laughs> shocking or compelling. Yes. Uh, the, the Darth Maul arcs at the end there, I think, were, were really great. Um, the end of season five, I should say. Right. Uh, season six, I wish was a, a longer season. I think everybody wishes it was yeah. a longer season. I wish we were in season eight right now, which is about where we would be. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, uh, the Satine arc as well, the Mandalorian arcs, where we got to really dive deep into Obi-Wan. When I got those scripts, those were kind of like, what? I get to, are you kidding me? Wow. And, you know, you get the scripts uh, for this show as we read them. People may not know that, but when we when we do a, a show like Clone Wars, it's so top secret that they do not send us the scripts generally until the day we're in there. If Sometimes, you know, for a, one or two of the seasons, they got into the habit of getting them to us a day before, and so we could kind of read through them. But there was all very, you know, you have to in, encrypt everything, and then it's being sent over lines, or it's, it's, it's sent by a courier, and it's got your name all over it, oh, and man. they shred everything afterwards. There's no evidence left. And so <laughs> you get these, and you're in the studio, and you're reading it. So a lot of times when you hear pretty much what you're hearing in the episodes, that was the first the third time we actually ever spoke those words so it really was fresh it was and that's that's also you know why being a voice actor is so different than being a on-camera actor where generally you've got months or weeks of time to prepare for something and in this you just need to be ready to go and so we were always ready to do it but the surprising things were what we got to walk into the studio with and and seeing those storylines with Satine, seeing those storylines with Darth Maul. When we all heard Darth Maul was coming back, we're like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You can't, I mean, come on. And I'm like going, didn't I finish the job earlier? Wait a second, you know. Um, and, and you're, and you're, so you're going, well, this has got to make sense, guys. You cannot bring a character back that you cut in half yeah. and clearly killed <laughs> and then have it make sense. And somehow yeah, <laughs> they did it. They did it. And I loved that they did it because I loved the character of Darth Maul. When I saw the Phantom Menace and I thought, as I'm watching the Phantom Menace, I'm going, well, this guy is clearly going to be the character that's going to take us through all three films. He's going to be the bad guy. Vader's then going to have a duel with him at some point and be like, I'm the Sith and you're nothing. And it doesn't happen. Obi-Wan oh. cuts him in half and, you know, at the third act of, of the first movie. And I was like, what? I was like, what? You know, it's Vader. Um, 
And so to be able to bring him back in the Clone Wars, it was the one place where it really made sense. Mm-hmm. And Sam Witwer, who is you know a dear friend, but also just a tremendous actor and a tremendous Star Wars fan, was the perfect person to play that part because he he brought so much of his love and emotion to it. So as an actor being in the studio, those ones were fantastic. Uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. I'm going to talk about some things that if somebody has not seen some of those uh, episodes, I'm sorry. But uh, the Satine stuff with Darth Maul, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Because um, yeah. you guys know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. was shocking. It was yeah. shocking. And I, I will – I'm not, I'm not uh, ashamed to say that I shed a tear in that session while we were recording it. Uh, because Anna Graves, who plays Satine, did such an amazing job and it was so brutal and unexpected on my part yeah. uh, getting the script right then. So, uh, yeah, that stuff was like, oh, come on, oh, yeah. so heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that Satine scene was just, it was, it was beautifully performed by you and, and Anna and Sam. Oh, thank you. And, and just the, yeah. the lighting and, and all the animators that, all the animation that was added after the fact. Was was, yeah. was beautiful, and I, I just have to ask you because you mentioned you know getting the script, so so like just in the moment, is, is that yeah. is that good in the sense that you can give sort of a raw reaction, much in the same way the characters do, or is, are there times when you're like you know you'll be driving home from the studio and think oh I should have done this line that way or it could have been done differently? Yeah, you know there's always there's always going to be that element. I think any performer has that. Uh, a lot of actors have it more than others. I. I have a tendency to go, you know, because it's always voice acting has always been my trade and it's what I love and I know that it's par for the course. It's just the way it works. I tend to try to let it go once I get out of there and go, okay, I gave it my best. Usually if there is something that you're like, no, I, you know, you're recording an episode and generally speaking, it takes about two hours to record an episode that of, of a 22 minute show like Clone Wars. We're there for four hours. Sometimes they book us for four hours. We're usually there for two hours. And within that time period, if I go, you know what? I just, I need to re-record that line. They'll always say, yeah, let's take another stab at it. But, uh, for the most part, I try to let it go. Um, yeah. I, and I try to just, let it be exactly what you said. It's that reaction of this is happening now. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm just the you know <laughs> sounds very artsy. I'm the conduit, but uh, <laughs> you know true. I'm the one that has the voice that speaks the words. But uh, it's already been plotted and mapped out by the uh, the writers and Dave Filoni and the, the the whole crew. And so then hopefully I can do my job of expressing those things once we get it. And Dave always gave us the opportunity to play with the lines and to change them around. Obi-Wan, probably more than almost any other character, we changed lines on a regular basis just due to the fact that, you know, you have to, as a writer, you have to be able to know how to write that character. And, and and that's certainly not a comment to say that people didn't. It's just dialogue-wise, you have to know how to write it. It's just like Yoda. Yoda would be right. the the other exception because Tom Kane has been Yoda for so many years. It's like, yeah, when do you flip a sentence? When do you not flip a sentence? When do you give a, a word a turn? When do you not? And Obi Wan was kind of the same thing where you just go, okay, I feel like he would say it this way. And um, Dave always gave me the uh, luxury to to do that, or at least record a version that was like that. And sometimes they use it and sometimes they didn't. But uh, that's that's the beauty of it all. Well, exactly. And it, and I think what's so good with you, James, is that um, I, 
I'm saying this so so respectfully, and I don't want you to blush at these comments, but I would generally put you in the categories now of the Alec Guinnesses and the Ewan McGregor in terms of you being Obi-Wan Kenobi. You you yourself, James, are synonymous with that. I think Alec Guinness, you think of original trilogy. Ewan McGregor, prequel trilogy. James Arnold Taylor, we think of Clone Wars and Rebels. And and that's so important, I think, for the fans to be able to have someone who really gets the character, because you really do, and and that was really exemplified as well in your recent appearance, of course, on Star Wars Rebels. It was a very brief one, yeah. but it's still a very palpable one. I mean, myself and Dominic did recently a poll on our website on the top yeah. ten moments of Star Wars Rebels, and Obi Wan yeah. Kenobi's appearance was number five. I mean, yeah. it, it, it then you know, and we see how good Star Wars Rebels season one was, but Obi Wan Kenobi's appearance was so tangibly felt for the for the audience. I mean, how did you approach that? Going back to Star Wars Rebels because it's been a couple, maybe a couple of years or a year or two since you've done the Clone Wars to then get back into voicing Obi Wan Kenobi. Did it seem like just a natural resumption? Yeah. Well, thank you. First off, thank you for your comments, and I, I take all of those to heart, and I, I do uh, really, really appreciate that, and I appreciate everybody's kind words that I receive regularly on that. This acceptance of my performance of the character. Um, it did. You know, when I got the call, I got. I got an email actually uh, very early on, a very cryptic one from a friend, a uh, casting person at Disney saying, uh, we'd like James to reprise a role that he's done for quite a few years. And, you know, they, they weren't going to say who. <laughs> and, you know, uh, we we look at it and go, OK, well, yeah, sure, that would be fine. And so uh, and then it was months later that I actually went into the studio to record and it was a larger speech originally, and then it was cut down, and we kind of tweaked it and fine-tuned it again. That that happened quite often in, in this process of, of doing the show. And Dave is such a meticulous fan of the, the shows as well, and Greg Weissman, who was uh, producing the show with him as well. Um, so we recorded it very much. Oh, the, the funny thing is we recorded it alone, so I wasn't in with the rest of the cast like we would do with the Clone Wars. And strangely enough uh, – as I'm walking into the – it was the same studios we did the Clone Wars in, so that was bittersweet. And as I'm walking in, D. Bradley Baker is just finishing up in the voice booth because he was doing a, an incidental voice or something for the show as well. He wasn't doing Rex or anything at the time, but um, – so it was it was just very surreal, you know. I expected to hear Tom Kane's voice on the uh, on the phone patch because Tom, of course, doesn't live here, and so every episode when we'd walk in, Tom would be on the line because he had just been recording either Yoda or the announcer doing that great announcer voice, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. planet at war, you know, uh, and so. Uh, but then I go in and then here we are and Dave's like, yeah, we're back. You know, it's just – it's like old times and um, I recorded the speech. But it was very kind of emotional because – you know, and somebody brought this up. A fan brought it up I think um, about how cool it was that you know, there was the speech we never really got to hear in the movies. But we knew it had to have been recorded and I got to be the one to do it and that was really uh, an emotional – peace for all of us and to hear obi-wan saying this stuff and to also then see my whole work as obi-wan in the clone wars was always anakin's the chosen one everything's fine this is the way it is i'm like a brother to him sometimes a father figure we all take care and and this is where we're going and he is the chosen one we will defeat the empire it's all going to be okay that was my perspective and that's the way I'd keep my headspace. I wouldn't watch episode three much when I was doing the Clone Wars because I didn't want to get too in my head about that. Mm-hmm. 
And so now I'm there and he's just seen all this carnage and he is really what he believes outside of Yoda, the only one left and hopefully there's others. And so he leaves this message, you know, I mean, how important is that? So that was really uh, an amazing thing to get to record. And I was really honored that, that they asked me and, uh, and I was really honored by the, the fact that fans were so receptive to it. Yeah. Well, like you said, it's, it's, it's this moment of absolute tragedy and yet, and, and you really can hear that in, in, in his voice or your voice in that moment. Uh-huh. And yet there's still this level of hope in there that, that seems to embody the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi where it's, it's, yes, there's, he's, he's endured all of these, these tragedies, but he never gives up hope right up until really until right. the very end. And, it, and you really captured it in that moment. I have to uh, commend you for that. I think it was a beautiful performance. Uh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to focus in on, on a particular arc from the Clone Wars now. And that was the, uh, yeah. the great, uh, Reiko Hardin arc from season four where, we ah, got, yeah, where, yes. we, where we got to see you kind of really show your, your vocal range going between Obi-Wan Kenobi and him in disguise as this bounty yep. hunter. And so you're, you're doing a different voice in a lot of those scenes, but you're still playing Obi-Wan Kenobi. Is, was that a, a, a a particular challenge of trying to stay in character as Obi-Wan while doing this completely different voice? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And thank you. It's a great question. And it's fun because, and when you asked about other story arcs or things that were intense to me, I, I was going to bring that one up and I'm glad you brought it up because that was, um, that was one of those days where I got in there and I was, uh, so out here in California, you know, we get lots of blooming trees and things, and I uh, am known to get an allergy attack a time or two <laughs> where my voice gets a little shot. And I walked in that day with with that being the case, and I look at the script where I have pages and pages <laughs> of dialogue. And then I, I'm glancing through it, and I see right off the bat that Obi-Wan gets killed, <laughs> and there's a funeral. <laughs> and I'm going, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. And then... I see that I'm playing this other character who has to have a completely different voice and there's all this. And so I was like blown away by all of it. And it worked to my advantage, my allergies, because Rico Hardin had this really deep kind of you know yeah. thing. I killed Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi and he was very, you know. And uh, because where my voice was at the time, it was perfect. We actually went back in the next week and re-recorded all my Obi-Wan lines Mm -hmm. because he sounded a bit like he had a cold. (laughs) Uh, Obi-Wan was right about him there. And so it just didn't work. Uh, So it was great because then I got to kind of go back and fine tune a lot of the stuff. Like when we did the thing where Obi-Wan takes the, the, the insect type thing, goes into his throat and all of that. They let me do all of that without, modulation and stuff. I'm oh, sure wow. Matt Wood and David Acord went in and messed with it a bit, but you know, it was this kind of moving the voice around and doing all the, all the it was just fun. <laughs> you know, awesome. as a voice actor, you, you look for moments like that, but you also look for those moments of doing that where a character is not themselves. And yeah, it was a challenge because I would have to, so I would think in my head, how would Obi-Wan say this? You know, like, come in, this is Ben. He would be saying it like this. I, I'm here, this is Ben, but but I had to be, I'm here. This is Ben. Mm-hmm. And he had, so he had to have that, that same presence of Obi-Wan and that, that meter and the way that he would speak because Obi-Wan would be very calm and he'd be speaking about this and would tell you, this is where I'm at. Um, 
so it was. It was a great challenge. The other cool thing, uh, and credit to Dave Filoni uh, and Carrie Silver, our producer, was they really wanted me to be the voice. They didn't want to cast someone else. And under a lot of circumstances, certainly under an acting circumstance on camera, they would just cast a different person to play that part. And so Dave was like, no, we know James can do this, but we don't want George to know it's the same person. <laughs> so they didn't tell him as far as I understand at first, you know, because they wanted to get his reaction first. And then it was like, well, that is the same. That's James. You know, it's like, oh, that's great. Um, you know, because if they told him, oh, it's the same person, he might then be listening for that sure. in it because they did. He wanted, I guess, specifically, he wanted there to be a complete separation. Um, so it was very cool. Yeah. So that's, uh, I don't know if I've shared that ever before, but uh, it's kind of inside a little story there, the fun, fun parts of it that, you know, ways that they would do it. But again, a credit to Dave knowing my vocal range and knowing that I could do it and that I wanted to do it and, and the fun we had. The other story I will share about those, that particular arc was, you know, Matt Lanter, who is just fantastic as Anakin, but he's a fantastic actor. He's a terrific person. One of my favorite people. And um, so many of my favorite people are on that cast, Ashley and Kat and Matt and all of them. They're just fantastic people. But so he had to, you know, Anakin thinks that Obi-Wan Kenobi's dead in that yeah. scene. And and he had to do that whole, you know, Obi-Wan. And he calls to him. And I'm telling you, not a dry eye in the room. Corey Burton is on one side of me, who is the legendary Corey Burton, the voice yeah. of so many amazing animated characters throughout history of Disney and everything else playing Count Dooku and Zero the Hutt and Cad Bane and he's on one side of me or he's on one side of Matt and I'm on the other side of Matt and Matt is doing these lines and with with literally one name Obi-Wan he conveyed so much emotion and story he was able to do that that we were all, I mean both Corey and I were like choking up going oh man this is this is tragic and you know and then Matt's like is that okay? <laughs> like, is that okay? Are you kidding me? So it was just, okay. yeah, it was I'm very crying. emotional. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to, shut up, man. <laughs> but, but it was, it was, um, you know, we were such a family on that show and I've worked on literally, I've, I would say probably over a hundred different shows throughout my career and never have I had the, the, response that I have or the feelings I've had for a cast and a show that we did with the Clone Wars. And so it was it was a great a great piece to be involved in. Absolutely. I think we could tell from an audience perspective that it wasn't just work. It was it was a family vibe to it. You guys seem to have such a good rapport with each other. And every time you would be at the convention together, the cast crew and uh, and behind the scenes staff, it, it would just be such good chemistry with all of you. And I think that's what really helped make this show something special and something really iconic for people. Um, and I, obviously, part and parcel of that, one of the individuals you mentioned there, of course, Dave Filoni, and mm -hmm. you were also very fortunate enough to guest his one of his favorite characters in the entire yeah. Star Wars universe, Mr. Plo yeah. Koon. I mean, yes. the main question to ask with regards to that, of uh, of course, you know, you can tell us any funny stories you have with regards to that as well. But you know, this is a character prior to the Clone Wars we'd never actually heard voice. We never heard him in the films before. So, right. what, it, what was it like to actually voice a character that you would? I've, I've never ever have heard of before 
Well, it's that's great, and I, you know, um, I do. I tell a little story about it in my my stage show that I got to do at Celebration, and I'll be doing uh, in a week or two at Star Wars Weekends here, and it's uh, it's a great story because it was when we were still doing just the first one or two episodes, which then of course became the movies. Uh, Clone Wars way back in the beginning, you know, this is 10 years ago. And Dave came to me and he says, uh, this character and Plo Koon and I knew Plo Koon and, and I was like, wow, this is great. You know, actually put a voice to it, but there's a lot of pressure to that. And, and he's like, you know, I'm thinking Gandalf. So he really had one word and it was Gandalf. He wanted that Ian McKellen sound and vibe and feel to it. And so, um, I took it there and I started there with, uh, everything being very, you know, kind of. Gandalf and, and full of uh, that type of energy and a bit of mystery and all of this and that's that's a fun starting point. So, <laughs> yeah, little Soka Kotoya Soka, <laughs> and and then Matt Wood and David Acord take this voice and they turn it into. They pitch it and they put it through a processor and and they give it a bit of this sound and and uh, so he becomes he becomes even more of a character and that mask and and so it was so uh, really cool to do that but then also see that he had such a pivotal role throughout so many episodes and and uh, there's a backstory with him and Ahsoka that has never been told but. Well, it's been it's been told to all of us uh. when we would sit at break times with Dave Filoni and or I, I remember sitting at uh, the ranch, uh, Lucasfilm and um, Big Rock and sitting in the commissary there with uh, with Dave and D. Bradley Baker. And we're having conversations and he's telling us the story of uh, Plo Koon and Ahsoka. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You gotta tell that story sometime of how he he was the one that found her and right. and you know brought her to the Jedi Council and such. It's it's a beautiful story. Uh, so the, yes, I'm going long ways around and I'm giving you guys very long answers. I apologize, but oh, no, uh, you, yes, great questions. Um, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it was great to be able to do that and to bring life to that. Now the funny thing about Plo Koon is so the first few episodes we recorded it and I I recorded it again very much in there and uh, the Gandalf thing and. And then I started watching the episodes, and I started hearing it. Me as a mimic and hearing things back, I started doing his voice the way that it was when it was on the show after it's been processed and right. pitched down and changed a bit. And so Matt Wood gets it back, and he's like, well, he's doing it now at this pitch, so now i got to mess with the pitch again. <laughs> and so he had to go back in and change it. Uh, and so now when I do Plo Koon, um, which I just got to do again in the studio not that long ago. I mean, they just announced the, the Disney Infinity game, you know, was right. going to have uh, Obi-Wan and Plo Koon in it and all the other characters. Um, so uh, I do it more. So, so whenever I do Plo Koon, he starts right about here. And so then they take it from there and they pitch it around. And the force is strong with you. But they, they process it a bit. But uh, that right there, you're getting Plo Koon in its unprocessed mode. That's, that's fantastic. And, it, and it's, it, I have to say, just, you're, you're going through these voices here and I'm just getting chills just listening to them. It's, it's so <laughs> surreal to, to have that just coming through the headphones right now. It's, it's fantastic. And, and, and James, we, we want to thank you so much for, for joining us today. We want to be respectful of your oh, sure. time. Uh, but is there anything else you'd like to promote? Uh, you've got coming up. We know you got Star Wars weekends is coming up. You got your show on the comlink and 
And you just oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I greatly appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, of course, people can follow me on social media. You know, you can go to my website, which is jamesarnoldtaylor.com, and that gives you links to all my social media. But if you're on Twitter, you can go to Jat Actor, which is at symbol, and then J-A-T-A-C-T-O-R. So it's Jat Actor. And Jat, of course, James Arnold Taylor. It's a lot quicker than, <laughs> than writing all of that out. Uh, so you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Jat Actor. I'm on Facebook as well, but I'll be honest, my Twitter account is the one that I watch and follow the most. And anytime you respond to any of those, it is me that's actually responding to Fantastic. you. But uh, Twitter's the one that I respond to the most at. Uh, and then, yes, the Comlink. Thank you so much for mentioning that. That's a, uh, a YouTube channel. Uh, you can go to the Comlink, uh, YouTube slash the Comlink, and check out. I've got a new show there called A Certain Point of View, which is a Star Wars debate show that we have a lot of fun putting together. And we've got great Star Wars celebrity guests that come on, and we debate Star Wars topics. And uh, it's a lot of uh, a lot of fun to put together. And uh, you know, we've we've got several of them already put out that we'll be releasing while I'm at Star Wars weekends, but I will be at Star Wars weekends here starting uh, the whole event starts May 15th through June 14th, I believe it is. And, or is it June, May 5th, May 14th through June 15th? I can't remember. It's, it's <laughs> give or take a day there. Right. It starts on the Friday. And, uh, and they are five weekends of Star Wars. We have everybody from Ian McDermott to Frank Oz oh, coming wow. this time. And I'll be interviewing all of them. And we've got uh, parades. We've got shows. We've got a Rebels show where I'll be interviewing the Rebels cast. We've got uh, my own stage show, which we call Obi-Wan and Beyond when I'm there, which is a one-man show where I take you through my life as a voice actor. And I do about 200 different voices and a lot of fun. On a lot of stories um, and a good time. I got to do that at Celebration as well, which was great fun. And then uh, what do I, I've got my book, which is called JAT 365. It's James Arnold Taylor, 365 days a year. And it gives you inspirations for people pursuing their dreams and goals in life. And, um, and it's a lot of fun. It's on Amazon.com. But uh, yeah, because I've been very fortunate in my life to pursue my dreams and get to achieve these goals. And so I like to share that with people. So that's why I wrote that. But um, yeah, I, I appreciate you guys allowing me to uh, to plug all those things, shamelessly plug all of my <laughs> oh. things there. But uh, I also appreciate your your love and respect for the Clone Wars and uh, keeping it alive here through your podcast and uh, giving people a lot to listen to and uh, to take advantage of. I appreciate that. The force is strong here indeed. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Absolutely. Thank uh, you. I've actually just got one, one final question to ask because oh, sure. i think it's quite a good one to okay. get your view on and <laughs> okay i'm excited I, as, as it's linked on to our podcast is really about the legacy of the clone wars i'd like to get your your personal view not just as a, a star wars actor but a star wars fan what in your mind is the legacy of the clone wars hmm. i i think that and that is a great question it's an important question uh i do think as as in our the beginning of our conversation how i said that i i do believe it will be something that time will show that really is endured and people will go back and say that was you know as as you would even with you know transformers the original ones and such it's very hard to say because they're totally different worlds and it's it's such a more advanced world now but how the impact of the ninja turtles or the or or transformers or gi joe or those things had such an impact on young people who then later became filmmakers and became just lovers of these things to where there was a demand for more of it. I think you're going to see some of that. But I also think beyond that in the world of Star Wars and in the world of these characters, it took us to places that we needed to go. And it is also extremely important to remember that it's the final canon work of George Lucas. All of this work on Clone Wars was 
George and Dave Filoni and the crew there putting this all together and telling the stories that George had in his head. And it's the final, really final works that, that he had did, done before, of course, uh, selling the company to Disney. And, and that's, that is nothing against uh, what Disney is doing. They're doing great things as well. But if you're a, a, you know, somebody that wants to know what George wanted to do with these characters, watch the Clone Wars because it, it really tells that story. And I think that's extremely important in that. But I also love the fact that families that grew up with Star Wars, like someone like myself that grew up with Star Wars, uh, I was seven years old when the first movie came out. I have something to show my child and sit down and watch. And that's what Clone Wars did is it gave families family time every week. Uh, and I countless people coming up to me and saying, you know, that's my time with my son. You know, dad's saying we sit and we watch the Clone Wars every Friday night. So thank you. And there's always a that fortune cookie that starts every episode with a moral kind of quote and lesson to be learned throughout it and so it was it was good tv it was um it was entertainment it was like i always thought it was like little movies but more importantly it it really i thought inspired us and that's what true filmmaking and true storytelling should do so I, i i think it's it's all of those things yeah absolutely absolutely and that's that's the goal of this show is to keep celebrating that and and i can think of no better way than to end it on on this interview on those words there james so thank you again so much for joining us it has been an absolute pleasure well thank you both and the force is strong with you indeed All right, and we want to thank James so much for joining us. Don't forget, you can catch James down at Disney Star Wars Weekends happening for, well, the remainder of May and the first half of June. So be sure to head down there if you, if you're, or if you're heading down to Florida, be sure to check that out. And you can also follow him, as he said, on Twitter at Jad Actor and be sure to watch a certain point of view on the comlink. All right, let's jump into these episodes, some of the biggest episodes of the series. Uh, we've, we reached the end of the story for certain characters and, uh, put a certain, put a little twist on the story for other characters. Uh, Karen, do you have episode descriptions for us this week? I do indeed, Dominic, and we will start with Revival. Of course, Revival, when it first aired, was actually in October of 2012. Well, actually, so, it was it was in August of 2012 at Star Wars Celebration 6. Well, okay, for some of the lucky few who managed to see it on an exclusive event. Yes, that's I mean, right. Fairness, I could be, we, me and you can be a part of that now, having seen yeah. the Star Wars Rebels. Rebels Season 2 premiere. Yeah, Siege of Lothal. <laughs> <laughs> See now, now, now I can understand why you could be a little bit smug about it once yeah. you've seen it, because <laughs> the other people who haven't seen it are envious. But if you're actually part of that exclusive group, you're a bit like, yeah, I'm quite proud of myself. You know, quite perky now, having seen those episodes and before you have. Anyway, we'll. Uh... <laughs> Without debating when Revival aired, for most people it aired in October 2012. Yes. For some, it aired three months earlier. Okay, the episode entitled Revival. Fueled by vengeance and rage, the newly reunited brothers, Savage Press and Maul, spread terror and violence across the galaxy. As the Sith brothers forcibly recruit Hondo Onaka and his pirates, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Adi Galia chase them down, leading to a deadly confrontation. The second episode in this four-part arc is entitled Eminence, 
and this was aired in January 2013. So we're now moving into 2013, folks. Savage and Maul form an alliance with the Death Watch to target a common enemy, Obi-Wan Kenobi. The third episode in this four-part arc is entitled Shades of Reason. Backed by the criminal underworld, the Sith and Death Watch launch an attack on Mandalore. And the final episode in this four-part arc is entitled The Lawless. Using Duchess Satine as bait, Darth Maul lures Obi-Wan into a trap. Darth Maul's policies, however, have alerted the attention of someone quite malevolent and all-powerful. Yeah. So, well, I first have to, I first have to talk about seeing Revival. Uh, well, it was only really a month early because it was at Star Wars Celebration 6, which was in August of 2012. And they, it was the first time they'd showed, you know, Clone Wars episodes, new Clone Wars episodes, I guess I should say, or, or new episodes of any Star Wars animation, um, at a Star Wars celebration other than I think perhaps in 2008 at Celebration Japan. I think they may have showed an episode there. But they they showed this episode and they had this big premiere and it was a lot of fun. It was really cool. Uh, but they also gave out this uh, this poster that uh, that I've still got hanging up on my wall here with uh, Maul and Savage. And it says, uh, what does it say on it? It says, uh, George Lucas presents Star Wars The Clone Wars. And it's it's really cool. I'll have to post a picture. But uh, I remember, you know, being so pumped for those episodes and 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 uh, especially in Revival, because that was the only one they showed, the only new one they showed. But in Revival, when Obi-Wan stands up and he ignites both lightsabers, I just remember the crowd going wild and thinking, this is perfect. This is fantastic. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and, you know, there were a few technical difficulties uh, with the uh, with the screening. Some of the sound was a bit. Uh, the, the bass was turned up a little bit too much, and so the the ground would the, there was a lot of low rumbles, and the ground would shake at at moments when you know it really shouldn't be. But it was still a, a phenomenal ex- experience to see it there, and and, and so for me, uh, seeing it that way, uh, you know, revival is one of those episodes I, I go back to as you know a favorite moment in, in Clone Wars history, just because you know they premiered at, at Celebration, and got to see it with a bunch of fans, and. And it was a really fun experience all around. Uh, but so now I'll throw it over to you. What, what were your initial impressions of uh, of Revival and the rest of the arc? Well, Revival, for me, when I first watched it, was absolutely phenomenal. And still look back at Season 5 and the series as a whole, I do think Revival is up there in my top three best episodes ever i just think the way it was executed was just so on point and whilst on on the surface it is about of course the brothers savage press maul and against obi-wan kenobi it's really carrying on the story that we were introduced to at the end of season four and i do think that Although we look at this as a as as an arc, because obviously these episodes interlink with each other, actually putting Revival as the season five premiere was probably one of the best decisions that they could have made, because 
it, it felt that that story had to continue. It was it was so groundbreaking to see Darth Maul return. And I believe that Revival was just so on point with not just the story. Visually, we talk about the lightsaber duel, particularly between Obi-Wan and the two brothers when they're in the... In the cat, cat, I was going to say catacombs. It wasn't really in the catacombs. It's more Geonosis when they were in the cave. Yeah, and that was that was pretty cool. And then on top of that, just the characters in it, having Hondo and Arca there, he was just great for that co- comedic value. And a of lot course. of people by this point who were already fans of Hondo and Arca had placed him really with the label of the Han Solo of the Clone Wars. <laughs> and and you can kind of see how you know, how on point really that that quote could be it's just he was so so impressive in these episodes the the voice had to just absolutely magnificent performance but thinking on then just in general the rest of the arc it it was it was flawless i i i Mm -hmm. really think this is up there with the best of star wars period not just clone wars but star wars period because of the richness in the story the characters that are involved the intensity and in a way the darkness of these episodes um we we really see it from the perspective of the sith we see maul and savage and the rise of their new empire from their own perspective not the heroes and that really gives it a different interpretation and we can really ascertain what these villains are all about, what their motivations are. And I think that's absolutely crucial and vital if you want to launch a story like this, where it's not just, oh, these guys didn't, you know, Maul and Savage aren't in episode three or in the future, so they're going to probably bite the dust. No, there's a lot more richness to that, and we get to see developments in their character story. And the final point I want to make on my initial thoughts, which is taking a lot longer than most people would expect, (laughs) but the main point I want to raise as well is... Ian Abercrombie's performance yes. was absolutely, absolutely. incredible. Um, talk about the idea of flawlessness in this arc. His performance in that final episode, The Lawless, was flawless. Let's see a bit of rhyme in there. Um, <laughs> I generally think that that was up there with the best. Um, he, it was synonymous with Ian McDermott. You, you would not be able to tell the difference between those two. And what a way to introduce Darth Sidious to the Clone Wars properly we've seen him in hologram form but in corporeal form in this way it it was breathtaking really wasn't it yeah absolutely absolutely and and uh yeah i i can't help but echo just about everything you said and uh you know just to go back to celebration six for a second it, it was uh another great moment was during the trailer of that where they had the moment with uh with with darth sidious and you just hear the trailer goes quiet and you just hear Sidious, you know, say, remember, there can only be two and you are no longer my apprentice. And then the two lightsabers and everything just goes nuts from that point up until maybe Chewie were home. That for me <laughs> was the ultimate in terms of Star Wars trailers, because I remember just freaking out when i saw that and and just like what is happening what is going on this is insane this is crazy what are we going to be seeing this season and and yeah and and absolutely these episodes for sure lived up to that hype now i want to start of course in revival with with an interesting thing that has always stuck out to me as 
as not weird, but but very intriguing and something that I, I've always wondered about. And it's when Maul and Savage are talking about the rule of two, basically. And Maul says, he, he quotes Yoda. He says, always two there are. He doesn't say there are only two or there can only be two Sith. He says, always two there are. Which is the, you know, the Yoda quote from the Phantom Menace. And that has always struck me as weird. And in, in, in a good way. And weird in a good way because it makes me want to know why is Maul quoting Yoda? How does, how does Maul know this? Or is Yoda quoting somebody else when he says that? And so I'll, 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 I want to get your take on that because it, it always struck me as sort of a moment that's like, Okay, this, this is interesting. Is there some kind of connection here that, that we're missing that we don't know about yet? Um, not necessarily between Maul and Yoda, but just some sort of dark side, light side thing or, or, or what? And, and so I, I want to know, why do you think Maul quotes Yoda? It's an interesting one. I didn't actually have that highlighted really in terms of, of significance, but you've raised it there and, and, and you do, you do hit on something there. The idea of this always got to be two. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of the Sith, obviously we all know Darth Bane's rule of two and the idea that there's always has to be a master and an apprentice, but they can't be more than that. I mean, when we say master and apprentice, we, we're classifying that in terms of the title of Sith Lord. And it's really in this arc that we visually get to see the ramifications of having more than two Sith around and about at this time and it gets a bit chaotic to say the least um you know Sidious says as much to Maul doesn't he that when they first meet Maul hasn't done this to as as he claims Maul does um to complete my training and I've done all this to return to your side Sidious just says no you've you've just become a rival that's that was your agenda and of course that was Maul's agenda that's what he said to Bree Vizsla. He said, we are the true lords of the Sith here. Yeah. And so linking onto that line, it's always got to be two. It, I mean, what we find with Star Wars, and um, we can always look at this from Obi-Wan's line in episode six, The Return of the Jedi, when he says, oh, it was true from a certain point of view. <laughs> I mean, uh, people interpret these lines in, in so many different ways. And the way that Maul... And, and, and Yoda may well have interpreted it, may not necessarily be the same as, say, Sidious would. Uh, I, I mean, it's obviously going to look to suit one's agenda. But the fact that Maul and Yoda have cited that, as you said, to me would then stress, stress that there is significance to that concept. And more than likely, it's a quote that's been passed down than necessarily them citing it because they've heard it from each other if you if you see sure. where, I, where i'm coming from there it, maybe we're completely wrong maybe it doesn't have significance but you know, the whole point of, of star wars is to is to speculate and conjecture we never know whether this would actually be highlighted in the new sequel trilogy but the sith have to return some way maybe maul is hinting at a way they could do what what, what did you make of that line then yourself dominic yeah well it, it's it's always been one that stuck out to me as i said and the, you know, perhaps 
one of the speculations about why Yoda speaks the way he does, you know, with the backwards and forwards and, and all, and all that, you know, always two there are, uh, and, and, and that kind of stuff is perhaps it's, it's sort of an older way of speaking that that's how people used to speak and, and Yoda being, you know, partially being, you know, 900 years old, but also being, you know, the, the top Jedi has sort of adopted this older way of speaking, uh, to be more formal, to recognize the past. And perhaps, you know, there was a time when everybody spoke that way. And so that line of always two there are is not actually, is actually Yoda quoting somebody else. Perhaps it's Yoda quoting Darth Bane or Yoda quoting who knows who at some point down the line. And that's something that Maul learned from Sidious, who learned it from Plagueis, who learned it from his master, who learned it from, you know, going all the way back to, so to Bane, who who knows? It, it it's that kind of thing that maybe it might be. Um but yeah, it's it's always something that's kind of just, just struck me as interesting uh about these episodes and I have always wanted to know why they chose to do that because I think it was a great choice. I think it, it adds something very interesting to Maul's character. The fact that he's quoting Yoda. He's using a line that we associate with one of the most powerful Jedi and here's one of the most powerful Sith using it. So I, I'm very intrigued by that. But uh, let's move on a little bit and focus in. We'll, st- we'll stick with Maul and, and Savage because I think that right after that, there's a, a very interesting exchange between the two of them where Savage thinks he uh, that they should be, you know, equals. They should be pawns. Yeah, they should be equals. And Maul has, is having none of that. Is that just Maul? You know, does does Maul think he needs Savage, or is he just bringing Savage along because they're family? Does, do you think maybe Maul figures he could do this on his own, or is he just trying to keep Savage in his place? Like, what, why is Maul so against this idea? Well, he's he's an adherer to this rule of two, yeah, and he says that as much in the quote. He says. There always has to be a master and an apprentice, and you are the apprentice. Mm-hmm. Maul is looking to be the dominant figure in this relationship, you could argue, between the two characters. Maul has been subservient to Darth Sidious when we saw him in The Phantom Menace, and he's and he's always been an agent of the Sith, but he's never actually been the master, the dominant figure. And, of course, the Sith always seek ultimate power. Now, of course, Maul's only been resurrected uh, well, we don't exactly know how much time has passed, but he's, he's been, he hasn't been resurrected that long, let's put it that way. However, he is still an extremely powerful being, and there's a reason why Mother Towson wanted to get him back. He wanted, they wanted, she wanted to bring Maul back to Temple. Um, he would be used as a tool to surmount Darth Sidious. Um, and she believed that he would be powerful enough. Now, okay, we see in these episodes that that doesn't necessarily take place. Um, however, I do think that in terms of his relationship with Savage there, he is trying to put him in his place and recognize that there has to be a master and apprentice for following this rule of two. This time, they're going to be the two Sith instead of Darth Sidious and Count Dooku, in their minds at least. Right. And so, for more, he will be that eminent figure who 
will be leading this. Mm-hmm. He is the one with the singular vision. Savage does not have the vision yet. And we have seen that with Savage's character, even in season three and season four, that he's been following the advice and instructions of what other people have told him. Asajj Ventress, he was following her when it, when she, um, that, when the Daphne magic was put onto him and, and he was tasked then to, after brain, after being brainwashed, to follow her mission of surmounting Count Dooku. Mother Towson sent them on the mission to find Darth Maul. Darth Maul now, we see, yeah, we're seeing the instances here of Savage Press still being the submissive figure because he's, he in a way is newly born to the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, even though he's been alive for how many years, um, in terms of a force user, he is new. He is, he, he is still quite fresh in that respect. And his skills, if honed, could really uh, cause some damage to the galaxy. And we've seen that already. However, for Maul, we can see that his, his demeanor, his personality re- reflects an individual who is far more intuitive and shrewd-minded, as well as um, someone who, could, who who has in their possession a grand vision of what they want to achieve. Right. This plan throughout was Maul's, not Savage's. But but the, what, what do you think then about that relationship between the two two well, characters I, I, there? I think it's really interesting that Maul, you know, on the one hand, he is definitely trying to adhere to the rule of two, as you're saying. You know, he, he is the master, Savage is the apprentice. He wants to be you know, king of the hill, for lack of a better term. You know, he wants to be the, the, the ruler. He wants to be the, the guy. But he still has this, this weakness for Savage. You know, he's this weakness for family. And I say weakness, you know, from a, from a Sith point of view, you know, cause, uh, he, when Savage loses his arm in the duel with Obi-Wan Kenobi, he, he quickly reacts to that and he, you know, he's very upset about that. And then, you know, the one time we see Maul kind of break down a little bit, is when Sidious kills Savage in the final episode. So we really see that, you know, Maul has this, has this affinity or love or, or what have you for his brother that kind of goes against everything he was preaching in this first scene of, you know, master, apprentice. They're not brothers. They're, they're just, uh, they're just master and apprentice. And so I think it's a really, it's a fascinating relationship between these two characters because Maul, you know, he clearly wants to be the top Sith, but he almost isn't cut out for it. You know, he's almost not, doesn't have the same cold heartlessness that, uh, Darth Sidious has. Like Darth Sidious has that for everybody. And Maul has that as well, to a certain extent. We see that with, you know, the way he kills Duchess Satine in front of Obi-Wan Kenobi, but he, you know, he still has this one weakness and that is, you know, perhaps what, you know, it, it it doesn't quite lead to his downfall because I don't think Maul could have beaten Sidious, but it, it, it really deepens his character from just, you know, villain to, you know, just kind of villain of the week to this much more interesting, much more deep character. And for those of you that have read the Darth Maul, Son of Dathomir comic, we kind of see that extended a little bit in, in that because we see his, you know, relationship with Mother Talzin. You know, he basically turns into a six-year-old when he's around her. And, you know, he, he has this weakness for family almost. And again, weakness from the Sith point of view that, you know, Darth Sidious and I, I would and uh, and Anakin or Darth Vader, at, you know, at a certain point didn't don't have uh, or Count Dooku doesn't have, you know, 
you think of the most powerful Sith, they don't have this, this weakness. Uh, and ultimately that's what brings down Darth Vader, his family. And you kind of wonder if that's a bit of a theme for the Sith that they can never, you know, in order to be a great Sith Lord, they have to, you know, completely cut themselves off from their family, which is ironic because that's a very Jedi thing to do. You know, that's the way the Jedi treat, um, treat their, uh, treat the, you know, the younglings, the Padawans, the, the next generation of Jedi. They're always being taken away from their parents. They don't get ever get a chance to know their parents. And that's almost, you know, what has to happen to the Sith. And that's a very Sith way to do things. And it kind of struck me as like, okay, this is, uh, all right. This, this is again. This is one of those times where it seems like the Jedi Order is is doing exactly the opposite of what they should do. Because you know, Maul seems to have some kind of compassion or love or respect or something for Darth for uh, Savage Press and Mother Talzin. That is really something that is you know Darth Sidious takes advantage of. Well, that's it, isn't it? Uh, a true Sith would be able to omit those ties and give in completely to the dark side. Right. We have to remember how Maul was manufactured. Um, we talk about that story of him when he was a child, raised up in a night, the, the night sister home world. Obi-Wan brings it up as much. You, ju- you could see within Maul's face that there is emotion, that, 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 that Obi-Wan is, is kind of getting to him mentally, psychologically, when he talks about his past, about how he was brought up. And I think that really links on to one of the overriding themes linked on to his relationship with Savage Press. One is compassion, but one is also sympathy. For right. the, they've both been in the same situation in a way where they've been used by the Night Sisters as a tool for somebody else's game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Savage for Adventurous and Talzin and Maul for Darth Sidious. Uh, and they've not really had a free life. Yeah, They, in a way, have been a slave, the similar way that Anakin was brought up as a slave. And when you look at the way that these some individuals have become Sith, and obviously Count Dooku doesn't necessarily follow this trend exactly, but they've, they've lived in relatively harsh conditions, a harsh lifestyle. And it's really what pushes them into the world of the Sith is because they're unable to overcome their fears or their hatred and anger towards these events which have taken place in their past. Right, um, they use them as you know fuel, as as anger. As, you know, they they hate. Well, look, look, who they even brought. when you're looking at Darth Sidious's yeah. past, for example, the anger he has towards his family because they don't, they didn't respect him enough, or they didn't give him the freedom that Sidious wanted. Sidious wanted to continually visit and and communicate with Plagueis, and that was being prohibited from him. So, you know, from Sidious's point of view, his freedom of action has been repressed. In a, you know, that's. That's not necessarily the same way direct slave to the huts, for example. But in a way, Sidious was seeing himself as a slave to his father because he wasn't being given the freedom to actually do what he wanted. So, I mean, we can see there there, there are links and, and more, I think, does reflect then that burdened background that these individuals have had to grow up with Um you know, maybe if they were nurtured in a more loving and caring way, they may not have been the most villainous individuals you'll see in a galaxy far, far away. However, um, as you were talking about there, what what is it about the relationship between Savage and Maul? Um, yeah, the fact that, that Maul has this compassion for Savage, I think a lot of it is linked into the sympathy element, that he can relate to Savage in a way, and he doesn't just see him as a tool, as you said, Dominic, sees him as a member of his family. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, let's move on a little bit to, towards the end of, uh, well, let's, let's move on to the second episode. You know, we, we get into, uh, the, the brothers are picked up by the Mandalorians and there's this kind of bizarre, uh, relationship that's kind of put together, uh, between this bizarre partnership between Pre Vizsla and Darth Maul of, you know, we, we, they agree to work together, but they're both planning to stab each other in the back. Game and, of Thrones esque. Yeah, very, very Game of Thrones esque. Um, and, and it was a, you know, it led to some great, great scenes. And, you know, the only person who really seemed to know what was going on was Bo Katan. I mean, she was the one that sort of recognized, we shouldn't trust this guy. This is not going to work out well for us. And, she was right. I mean, she she figured it out in the end because well, Previsor didn't necessarily trust him either. I think no, he was but... trying to use Maul as a tool. I think perhaps Bo-Katan saw Maul as a lot more dangerous yes. than Previsor had originally anticipated. Yeah, perhaps. absolutely. I don't know, but um, sorry, Carrie. I think you we link it on to no, the, no, no, to no. I, I think that that's a good point. I think you're right. I think she she saw him as much more dangerous. But they build up this coalition of uh, of underworld. Uh, factions, you know, the Huts, the Pikes, the Black Sun, they all kind of team up with, uh, with, with Darth Maul. And it's, it's kind of one of those things. It's like, it's, it's kind of amazing that Maul was able to pull this all off. And yet you may kind of wonder, does this kind of leave a bit of a power vacuum in the underworld? Does this kind of, or, you know, they've all, they're all working together. They can't possibly stick together beyond you know, the events of these episodes, do you think? I mean, it doesn't seem like they would. And if you read the Darth Maul comic, you, you know that they, they, they don't. And it, it, you kind of wonder how well thought out this plan was for, for Maul. Was this a, a, an instance of Maul just kind of jumping too quickly into something, you know, being very Sith-like, acting on emotion and, and, and seeing this as a plan? Or do you think this was a, a good plan on, on the part of Maul? I... It's hard to evaluate with real accuracy as to whether Maul's plan was going to work. I mean, the issue we have is, of course, the time scale of events. Mm-hmm. Maul's plan doesn't, or well, it obviously doesn't come into effect because Darth Sidious intervenes. Um, and in a way, whilst Darth Sidious is, or is the chancellor of the republic i.e lack of a better term uh you know leader of a galactic empire all but name Mm -hmm. then maul is always going to struggle to emerge victorious in this affair shouldn't shouldn't maul have known that sidious was out there shouldn't he have been more prepared for this situation because he seemed pretty taken aback when sidious walked through those doors well, perhaps he didn't expect Sidious to get involved himself. I mean, the, the, the always fascinating thing with Darth Maul, I find, is that going into his psyche and and actually finding out how much he was told about Sidious's plan. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he knew about the Clone Wars. So it began without me. Yeah. But how deep does that go? Did he know that Sidious was going to uh, ascend and become the Chancellor of the Republic? Did he know the methods that Sidious was going to be looking to employ? Perhaps he underestimated him. I think he underestimated Sidious in his art completely. Because as a as an individual, uh, as, as a figure who Maul clearly knew 
very, very well, having grown up with him and and being trained by Sidious. Right. He he really should have recognized that Sidious would have been aware of, of what was going on in the universe. If Maul could sense him, then Sidious surely could as well. And 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 we and we can see that already in Revival when when Chancellor Palpatine is talking with the Jedi and trying to throw them off the scent, saying, "Well, oh, we got we got a war to focus on." That Sidious beginning to hatch his own plot and his own ends to find out where Maul is, unearth it under the right under the noses of the Jedi. By the way, that's what's so fantastic about this story arc is that it, you know, it, it's difficult for Sidious to get involved because he is the Chancellor of the Republic, and if he leaves on a mission, it's a lot of people are going to be uh, privy to the fact that he's left and may well know where he's heading off. He'd obviously have to shield himself and perhaps you could say the dark side clouds everything, but, you know, Chancellor goes off on a mission somewhere. You're thinking, hmm, where, where is he off to? Bearing in mind the amount of efforts the Jedi actually employed to try and stop the kidnapping of the Chancellor in a Naboo arc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's have to wander off and go into the dangerous hub of Mandalore. It's a, right. a bit strange. But anyway, um, I, I, I thought that was quite, quite interesting how Sidious was hatching his plot there. Well, um, yeah, I, but as you were talking about with regards to Maul and his, and his vision, I do think that he'd underestimated Sidious and his plan as a result would never really come into fruition. Yeah. But, uh, well, I think, what, I think, what do you take about that? Yeah. Well, I think his what plan, yeah, I think what ultimately happened, I think you're right. I think Maul underestimated Sidious. And I think the purpose of that scene at the end of Revival is to imply that Sidious is, is perhaps thinking about a bit of a, you know, of, of, you know, okay, Darth Maul is out there. I'm going to let him be for a little while, see what he does, see if he can pull off this massive, uh, you know, building this, this, this underworld army and, and can he, can he do anything? Can he succeed at, at any level? And if he, if he can, then I'm going to go and test him. And if he passes the test, then perhaps we'll have a bit of a, you know, a, kind of a return of the Jedi type situation where, you know, the emperor is watching what he thinks is a duel between, you know, his old apprentice and his new apprentice, perhaps in, in, you know, you know, the return of the Jedi, he thinks that Luke Skywalker will turn to the dark side. So he's going to have him kill Darth Vader and take his place. Perhaps that's what Sidious is thinking he can pull off here is, you know, maybe have a, have Maul take on Dooku and we'll see which one is most worthy to be his apprentice. And although you don't really see that in these episodes, you perhaps wonder if, if Sidious recognizes something during that fight that, you know he he shouldn't really well you know he does take him captive he does take him captive so it's not it, it it's a bit unclear what Sidious's motives are at the end of this episode we know in, from the Darth Maul comic is he's trying to use Maul as as bait basically to get uh, get mother Talzin out there get her out in the open and so perhaps you know maybe that's just it maybe he wanted to build Maul up to a certain point and see if Maul was ready to perhaps come back or be used for something else and i think that you know this duel between sidious and maul at the end was for that purpose was to see if maul was ready or if maul could come back and be his apprentice or if he was better served as bait from other tells and then based on the end of the duel and what happens next in the comics well we know that he is better used as as bait from other tells and then as a than as a, a a new sith apprentice which is is which is interesting and i think it comes back again 
to the the family thing. I think Sidious recognized when he killed Savage that Maul had this connection to family, and as a result, his best use is to draw out the rest of his family. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting point. Do you think that when Sidious went into this fight with Darth Maul and Savage, I know we're going into the final episode now, but when you know, talk about his motivations there, do you think that Sidious was going to kill Maul when he went in there before he found out the ramifications of obviously the family connection side with Savage? Because he do, he says that Maul's become a rival. Is that not one of the pressing? motivations here to cut out this rival I, I think if sidious wanted maul dead he would not have taken the jedi off of him at the end of revival i think if maul, if that was all sidious sidious wanted he would have encouraged you know an entire a strike team made up of obi-wan kenobi anakin skywalker mace windu and master yoda to go in there and and take on darth maul and you know kill or, him. or would you not think sidious would at least want to do the deed himself because Maul knows a lot of information about the Clone Wars. What if the Jedi didn't kill him but captured him, which is obviously what Mace Windu suggested happen in the end of Season 4? Right, right. Well, that that's a good There's point. There's a lot of stake here for Darth Sidious, is there not? I think, although Sidious is trying to play the game here, he must know that there's a lot of risk as well to Maul just roaming about quite freely. That's a good point. I, I, I well... Yeah, that's that's a good way to to look at it because if Maul is captured, then there's a chance that the Jedi could get in get in his mind. But I think that Maul hates the Jedi too much that and I think Sidious probably recognizes that that Maul hates the Jedi too much to ever to ever work with them or ever tell them anything. I I don't think it's it's a very different situation from Asajj Ventress who, you know, was was at one point training to be a Jedi and then went dark. I think Maul, you know, he was dark his whole life. I don't think he would have ever uh, considered any sort of alliance with the Jedi, let alone Obi-Wan Kenobi. And so I, I wouldn't expect that. I think Sidious pulled the Jedi off of Maul, perhaps partially out of fear of that, you know, to keep them away from this. But I also think that Sidious wanted to see how Maul could do because it took him a while. You know, he didn't, it wasn't like, okay, Nobody pay attention to Darth Maul. And now I'm going out there myself and I'm going to kill him right away. There was kind of, there was enough time for Maul to build up this, this army. And it's only when Sidious really sat there and, and sensed the, the strength in the dark side in Maul. It was at that moment that I think he sort of re- realized, okay, now's the time to either test him or eliminate him. So I, I think it's a bit of both. I think you're right. I think it's a bit of both. I, th- I think Sidious didn't want the Jedi to be too close to Maul on the off chance that they captured him and on the off off chance that uh that that Maul would talk to them but i also think that he was very interested in seeing how this kind of played out uh because there there is a certain amount of that to Sidious he just kind of lets things play out and he has sees how things work you know he, he tells Anakin Skywalker we will watch Yokoria with great interest um but he doesn't go out of his way to protect Anakin but he he's always watching and thinking okay maybe someday this kid will be ready to take over from Dooku as the uh as the new Sith Lord or the I new find Sith it interesting now as well that Sidious intervenes himself to deal with Maul and he doesn't send a separatist or count Dooku mhm to deal with, or Count Dooku himself well, to deal with more. Well, this is why I think it was a test. I think if it was just kill Duke, or if it was just kill Maul, then maybe he might have sent he might have sent Dooku. 
but I think Sidious wanted to see for himself just how powerful this guy could be. And that's why he went by him. That's why he went by himself because he knows he's the most powerful being in the galaxy. So he thinks, and, and then he, so he can gauge Maul based on what he sees and what, how he fights against him, not how Dooku reports on how things go. That's how I think it played out. Yeah, you know, you look at, you look at the, the duels between Anakin and, and Dooku, the ones that really matter, like in the, um, of course, in Revenge of the Sith and, in the Braco Hardeen arc where we talked about it, where it seemed like that was like Sidious's first try to get Anakin to turn to the dark side. He was there to watch those duels. He was there to see for his, for himself, just how powerful Anakin Skywalker was. It wasn't just a matter of, well, well, okay, well, somebody fight and then tell me how it went. It was, I I need to see this. And same thing in return of the Jedi. It was, it wasn't okay. Darth when, when the idea was, was presented to Sidious as, okay, well, let's, uh, Let's uh let, let's see about turning Luke Skywalker to the dark side. It wasn't okay, Darth Vader. You go fight him and report back. It was Darth Vader. You go get him and bring him to me. Even even in Empire Strikes Back, it was that. It was you know go get Luke Skywalker, freeze him in carbonite, bring him before me. I want to see him for myself. I don't want to just hear about how things went between the two of you. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Um, and I guess also part of it would be linked into Episode Five and Episode Six. Um, uh, the films we're talking about here uh, of not necessarily fear, but obviously caution as to what Vader's motives would also be here. I mean, I, I'm sure Sidious to an extent may be underestimated. Uh, the fact that Darth Vader was completely loyal to the dark side, because clearly he had his son there and that really turns mm-hmm. the course of the, the Star Wars universe when he uh, threw the Emperor down the shaft. But at the same time, like you said, we see this common theme of Sidious being there in person to see for himself how powerful this being is. Yeah. Although you I, look, I, I the, the, one time, the one time you know you may have thought Luke Skywalker would turn to the dark side was when he was face-to-face with the Emperor. You know, Sidious has to be there. He doesn't... He wants to see things for himself. He wants to, you know, he has, he is the ultimate puppet master, but when things are really important, he needs to be there himself to see, to make these decisions, uh, that will affect his, his journey and the, really the entire galaxy. A little bit of conjecture for you here as well, Dominic, is linked on to the idea of Sidious testing his apprentices. And in, obviously we see in this episode, The Lawless, he openly challenges more and Savage right. both together um, to a duel. Why do you think he doesn't do that with Anakin Skywalker? Mm, with Anakin Skywalker? Well, because I don't think Anakin was ready for that. I think Sidious knew that Anakin maybe wasn't ready for that uh, at, at that moment to you know challenge him to a duel to to perhaps kill him or or what have you. I think Sidious needed to see that Anakin was powerful enough. And that's why he had him kill Dooku. Uh, but he maybe needed to wait a little bit longer, plant a few more seeds in Anakin's mind. You know, the whole Darth, Darth Plagueis story, having the Jedi Council not try, trust him to the point where Darth Sidious being, a, or Chancellor Palpatine being a Sith Lord wouldn't seem like the worst thing that happened to him that day. You know, the worst thing that happened to him that day would have been another conversation with Mace Windu. Also, I think you're, you're right that part of the thing with Maul is that Sidious very much thought he might have to kill him and so he went out there to to face off with maul on on his own whereas with anakin 
I don't think he rec- he didn't think he would have to kill him right away. I think Sidious perhaps thought that Anakin would either was so confident Anakin would turn that he didn't need to face off between the two of have the two of them fight or he recognized that you know order 66 was out there there were still backup plans there were still ways to to take down this kid and and the other thing is you know again Maul just knows so much more about Sidious that you know Anakin Skywalker you know doesn't need to fight Darth yeah it's like it's like you said Sidious thought he may need to kill Maul yeah. Well, also, you could say Anakin was indoctrinated from a very young age. Oh, for sure. Uh, well, so was Maul. Sidious. So was Maul. So was Maul, but um, I think that once Anakin had turned, he made him so isolated that he was under the thrall of Sidious, and Sidious could, you know, he nurtured from a very, very young age, but he managed to, well, do a similar thing to Maul, where he was just under the the total rule and and control of Darth Sidious by the time we get to Revenge of the Sith, where he dare not challenge his master. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the only time we ever see Darth Vader try to challenge his master, at least um, in the canon universe, is when Luke Skywalker is around. Um, he would never feel he would have the confidence to challenge openly to Darth Sidious's reign and power. And, I mean... You wonder how much Darth Vader was, you know, throughout his whole life after he had turned to the dark side, just so hateful of his master after everything that's happened to him. Yeah. Or, or whether he does believe in what he says. And he's, um, obviously, he'll blame himself for what happened to Padme, but how much of that is indicted on Sidious? Mm-hmm. I'm, it's an interesting question, really, because you see in that final duel with Luke, he keeps looking to and fro, and he's thinking, and he's thinking. Um, eventually, makes the right decision and chucks the emperor down the shaft. But you know, there's clearly conflict in him there, and I wonder how long that conflict had really been brewing. But anyway, that's that's a conversation for a entirely different <laughs> arc and episode. You see, yeah, this is what this arc does it just it, you can see it link so nicely onto the grand mainstream Star Wars universe with, with like the films and stuff. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, before we let's keep let's keep, let's move on to the next episode because uh, I want to I want to get your take on uh, on how Maul, I, sh- I guess I should say, or how Vizsla's plan works. You know, we talked about how Maul's plan works. Now, how does Vizsla's plan work? Do you think? Well, I guess it's 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 kind of a combination of, of Maul and Vizsla's plan. I thought this was pretty genius. This this whole thing of making the Death Watch be liberators, and I think it's what Count Dooku was trying to get them to do back in season two. You know, that he was trying to convince them that you know if you go in there as you know just as 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 to take over, then they won't the people won't be on your side. But to come in as liberators, then they get the people on their side, and it worked. And you know. It, it's interesting that this is very much the Sith way of doing things. It's it's almost kind of a it's a very Sidious thing to do, you know. Sidious basically does this to the Republic with Order sixty six. Yeah, you know, he he pulls this this whole thing out where he makes the Jedi, who at one point he, were you know the strong leaders, look like the weaklings, and all of a sudden they're being brought down because he just kind of flipped a switch and. And made it look like they were all of a sudden the bad guys, and he was there to save the day by turning the Republic into the Empire. Well, it was it was almost a, a, 
a national uprising. Uh, well, the best way I describe it is is obviously a coup d'état. Is 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 what has happened here? Um, supplanting Duchess Satine from her position of power, and one of the principal methods you uh, to do that, and one of the principal factors you'll need on your side is support of the people. So, as you said, the perception of these. Death Watch Mandalorians as liberators, it really worked. And it, the authenticity towards this argument and, and idea, as well as the perception of the Death Watch, was based upon the attack of the crime lords, that it, it was a tangible threat. It, it seemed yeah. real for certain. And the only way you'd be able to have you know, that being put into effect is if you have the crime lords directed their attention on just one particular planet and then suddenly the death watcher there to save the day um now duchess satine's rule of neutrality was always under threat from many elements and positions of society we saw that in season three with prime minister olmack trying to destate well possibly destabilize but at least undercut her position of authority towards the end of the two interesting episodes <laughs> in season three well it was, it was funny i was gonna bring it up they they do have some mandalorian tea in these episodes you know Ma- maul and, and, and Vizsla have tea time there well you know i guess hopefully it didn't have the same tea that those uh, I, I, I keep looking at those um egyptian like <laughs> i don't know what they're the moogles is that what they're called moogans the, uh, the Mugans, that's it. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking about. They just remind me of something. The connotations of Egypt there just seem so so over to me. But never, nevertheless, that's got nothing to do with what I was about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> just a nice point there to make. Um, uh, in terms of your argument, you're talking about the idea of liberators then the Mandalorian Death Watch. How, how have you reviewed and, and critiqued their plan then? I mean, it, it was quite a clever one and... Obviously, it worked to an extent, but do you feel that um, they're... I'll ask you this. Do you think they were ever going to succeed in toppling Maul from his behind-the-scenes position of power? In a sense, Pre Vizsla tried to second-guess Maul when he had gotten rid of all of the crime families and arrested them, but... Do you think that had Vista not agreed to the duel, that Maul may well have not succeeded? Yeah, I, I think, I think again, more, it, more it goes back. We're going to betray him at some point. Sure, I, I think it goes back to the, what we were talking about earlier. That Bo-Katan is the only one that knows what's up. You know, she recognizes that this is a bad idea because every time a Sith helped out the Mandalorians, they were trying to, they were just using them for their own means. You know, Duke who wanted Mandalore and, and the the network of neutral systems to uh to join the separatists and maul wanted to just control them and so there was no there was never any way that the that death watch was going to be successful they were always doomed to lose every time they teamed up with darth maul and or or darth darth tyrannus anybody who's named darth basically it was a bad idea for them to work with them and bo the only one that recognized this because again, look, Prevesla got his head chopped off because he agreed to work with Maul and because he underestimated Maul's plan. 
and you know he thought he could or he underestimated Maul I guess I should say he just he just didn't think he was powerful enough to or he or Vizsla thought he was powerful enough to take down Maul when he wasn't you know Maul again dark side user versus Mandalorian it's a good fight and as we saw in the episode it's a great fight but it's at the end of the day the guy with the dark side or the guy with the force wins and again Bo-Katan recognized that Vizsla didn't and that's why she's alive and he's dead yeah but can't argue at that point there Vizsla certainly I mean in that fight with Maul which was a spectacular spectacularly animated um, one of the best fights period I think in terms of lightsaber duels that we've seen oh, in, in sure. Star Wars it was it was in, in, incredibly well choreographed However, um, what we see in that fight is that Maul is really playing Vizsla here. He, 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 at any point in this duel, if Maul really wanted to, he could he just force take choke Vizsla him to down. Die. Just use this force choke, or he uh, didn't use the force, but if it, and also we see more skills of his lightsaber against the Jedi, yeah, um, yeah. who are force users, um, and he and he manages to best them, does he not? In uh, in Phantom Menace, yeah, I mean, okay. Obi Wan does emerge victorious, but by the skin of his teeth. And <laughs> had Obi Wan had Darth Maul just said, "It's over. I have the high ground." Then we might have had a different story or a different ending to Episode One. <laughs> it's over. I have the high ground. Yeah, yeah. Well, now we now we know where Obi Wan got his move in Revenge of the Sith. Uh, but yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's the overconfidence. Your overconfidence is your weakness, and that's. That's the. That was that's what happened to Bree Vizsla. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But but let's let's talk about the uh, the final episode, Lawless, and it, it begins with a great callback to those those Mandalorian T episodes with with Corky and and the crew, Corky and the gang, I guess, <laughs> uh, rescuing uh, Satine from prison. And now, <laughs> I don't know how much time was supposed to go to take place between those episodes, but did is it just me or did it look like they went from like. 10 year olds to 25 year olds in the span of two seasons i you know what that's a good point i i remember looking at them visually and i was thinking to myself we only saw them two seasons ago it seems as though like you said we've been a whole it's been a whole generation in the span of the time of the empire for goodness sake (laughs) they all took some steroids and (laughs) and worked out yeah i know well i Maybe they hit puberty quicker than we yeah, realize, or, or it works quicker on Mandalorians because yeah, it was a little bit of a shock to be like, "Hi, Auntie," compared to the <laughs> "Hi, Auntie" from season three. Yeah, but, exactly, uh... <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, I, I want to talk about Satine for a second here because you know she she does wind up in prison, but she seemed to surrender very quickly, and. Did, did that strike you as odd? Because she had spent her entire life, her entire career, as, at least as long as we had known her, fighting, or not, 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 not fighting, but resisting the Death Watch and, and trying to stay away from that and trying to steer Mandalore in this different direction. But in, in this moment, she kind of just laid down her weapons and let, or lay down, just kind of surrendered to, to Pre Vizsla. And she was kind of stuck in that, that ultimate situation where it's like, what is her option? Does she fight or does she just kind of let Maul be? Uh, I guess, let, I like, guess in Satine's mind, would this not be seen as hypocritical towards 
Oh, for all sure. Of, all of the principles that she stood for, for sure. if she was to openly fight and, and confront the Death Watch, it's not, it's, it's not in line with her ideology, mm-hmm. um, what she actually believes in, her, what, yeah, what the doctrine is that she actually adheres to. And I, you can understand from the pacifist perspective why non-intervention is really what we're seeing here by not intervening against the Death Watch. Uh, we see that non-intervention is, is part of this philosophy, and it—it's one of the frustrations with Satine. And in a, in a galaxy-wide war, it's it's seemingly admirable that these neutral systems seem to maintain this idea of remaining peaceful. But when you've got external threats constantly on your door, it, it, you. And that's one of the main issues for me with Mandalore is that they didn't really have any strong deterrence to stop even the crime lords. I mean, it didn't. Okay, there were a, there was a, a range of different crime lord families who had gotten involved on Mandalore, but the Mandalorian security staff didn't put up much of a fight either. I mean, they were, they were locked up within a space of a couple of minutes. The Mandalorians, on the other hand, put up a bit more of a fight whenever you know that prisoners have managed to escape i'm not sure whether satine and her guards would have been able to have the same results as maul's mandalorians by the time we get to the lawless episode but yeah for me it's it, it's sad but the idea of of satine having to follow her pacifist ideology was always going to lead to her downfall i mean I, would you agree with that do you think that there was any way that satine would have been able to stop vizsla without I get, as I said, seemingly uh, being hypocritical and going against her own beliefs. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think what Satine didn't, what what you know, this was her character flaw, is that she didn't understand the difference between defense and aggression. And Vizsla was into aggression, uh, and and there there is a, a a distinct difference between being aggressive and being defensive. And you know, she wasn't able to defend her people. And, you know, defending her people is not the same as embracing their warrior roots and, and doing what Vizsla does. And, you know, we saw in A Friend in Need, Vizsla and the man, and the, and the Death Watch could be very, very horrible. They, they were not good people. They were not, you know, the liberators that they were trying to make themselves look like. But, uh, by that same token, you know, Satine was just so against any violence of any kind that she failed to, failed to protect her people. She, 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 she failed this city, uh, for lack of a better better phrase so yeah yeah but anyways we got let's get back to get back to this uh this final episode and, and we get the reveal that bo-katan and satine are sisters what was your reaction to that convenient <laughs> no I, I it was one of those storylines that really just came out in the blue didn't it yeah it, it did it did well I'll, I'll ask you the question first since you usually get me to have the first response but did it not seem convenient to you or or did you actually buy into this relationship and think that it was an an interesting dynamic that was added as a a, a certainly secondary storyline that was uh, was occurring as well okay i'll put it this way yes i agree it was it was a bit convenient but i i do think it did add something i think i think there was it, it gave Satine's character a little more depth that gave Bo-Katan's character a little bit more depth and you you just wondered what it was like 
or what caused them both to go on these sort of separate passages. You know, we, we know from, you know, what Obi-Wan said in, in, in the, uh, in the first Mandalorian episodes back in season two, that there was some pretty horrible stuff going on on Mandalore. And you kind of wonder what happened then that sort of caused these two characters to divert on completely different paths. You know, uh, Bo-Katan sort of realized, okay, we need to go get, we need to, to fight back. We need to be able to fight back against whatever was going on then. And Satine sort of thought, no, we need to end the fighting completely. So I think it adds a kind of an interesting dynamic and it would have been, it sets up a, <laughs> it sets up an interesting prequel comic or something for a couple of years down the line. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of an, it, 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 I think it added a little bit of something, a little something to, to their dynamic and to, you know, why, Bo-Katan would rescue Satine, why they would work together in this final episode, however briefly. Um, but I, I, I think it worked well. I don't know. Uh, I get the impression you weren't so uh, so taken with it. No, I, I, I like the two characters individually, but it it frustrated me a little bit the way that it was handled that was i know it's a bit of flawless arcus you might contradict myself here and it and it was but i do think that was one of the storylines which could have been improved on if you're going to make it part of this grand arc where we're really concentrating on the sith and 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 actually seeing how a sith plan has been set in motion just at a really accelerated accelerated rate uh, it's quite similar there were parallels i think to sidious's vision in a way of the, of Maul's rise to power, obviously not necessarily democratic, democratically elected, but of trying to get all the star systems aligned. Maul sure. just used more forceful tactics. But for me, yeah, for me, that was the main premise of the story arc. Satine and and Bo Katan, that story arc really was seemed a bit too last minute. Um, and when it came to Satine's death, it was it was heartbreaking because of the relationship she's had with Obi Wan. I didn't necessarily feel anything or that sounds harsh, but I didn't, I didn't feel for Bo-Katan as much. We'd been introduced to Bo-Katan and she's a very cool character and clearly a very skilled uh, Mandalorian warrior. However, there was not enough in terms of the interaction and dynamics between her and Satine that really had me emotionally invested in their, in their relationship. You, can you kind of see where I'm coming from? There, yeah, right? I, absolutely. I, I think you're right. I I also think that this was a, this was more to, done less to 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 make you sympathize with. Well, okay, I think it was done partially to make you sympathize with Bo-Katan, not necessarily when Satine dies, but suggesting that she's not just this uh, vile warrior like Pre Vizsla was. I mean, Vizsla, for as as interesting as a character was, he was not a character that you ever liked. Whereas Bo-Katan, I think there were several steps taken in these episodes to show that she was more respectable than Bo, than, um, than Vizsla, that she was a better person than Vizsla. And I think, you know, that included, you know, her, her not wanting to work with, uh, with Maul. And then of course her turning on Maul at the end of the, ep- at the end of the, the third episode there where she, she takes, her night owls and the remaining, you know, Mandalorian loyalists, I guess, to her, or loyal to, to to Vizsla, and and leaves. So I think it was done sort of to show, and then this was just kind of the next step in that to show that she is, 
she's not like the other Mandalorians that she is not out just for blood. She is out for something. She's, she's standing for something. And I think that this would have played in to any future Mandalorian arcs. I think this was done to set up something more in the future. And we know that we would have gone back to Mandalore. We know that there would have been a story arc there involving Bo-Katan and involving Ahsoka. So I, I think there would have been some interesting stuff that we would have seen and, and learned in this, this moment wouldn't have seemed like an afterthought because I agree. It does kind of seem like an afterthought when this is the last time we ever, we see the, any of those characters. Yeah. You know, I mean, is, that, in yeah. fairness, that is the issue that you've, you've raised there. And we'll never really know unless mm-hmm. it's revealed to us in a panel in the future, whether there was going to be a storyline concentrating on Bo-Katan's story arc and, and the development of her character in the future, her character storyline. And until I, I, I'd like to think that there may well have been, and I I'd like to think as well that Mandalore would have been a story, which the writers would have returned to had the Clone Wars continued on for a number of, seasons and therefore one would naturally assume that, that Bo-Katan's story would have been further embellished however it just didn't because we've only have that as you said that's the last time we see these characters it does seem a little bit forced and it seems a little bit like deja vu convenient we've been here before because of what's happened with uh, Luke and Leia and Obviously, Obi-Wan's line when he says, hopefully this isn't your quote, when he says, you know, I, oh, she was your sister, wasn't she? I'm so sorry, which, you know, rings back echoes to Ewan McGregor speaking to Padme. No, Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan speaking to Padme <laughs> in uh, in episode three. Well, that would be something if Ewan McGregor was actually a character in Star Wars. <laughs> but, um, That's yeah, who he's so playing I, in The Force I, Awakens. I, I, uh, sorry? That's who he's playing in The Force Awakens. Ewan McGregor is playing Ewan McGregor. <laughs> Yeah, Samuel L. Jackson could just return as Samuel L. Jackson in, in the um... and Warwick Davis is just playing yeah. Warwick Davis because because he's Warwick Davis. He should play Warwick Davis should, should play the life's too short version of himself in the can Force we, we... Awakens. Yeah, he could do that, and Samuel L. Jackson could be his Pulp Fiction character, couldn't he? <laughs> exactly. Say what again? Say what again? <laughs> I can see that, and you, can, and you just have Liam Neeson in there for no apparent reason. <laughs> just, well, no, he the... could be from Taken. Yeah. <laughs> I will hunt you down, and I will find you. <laughs> Sorry, my voice just, just changed since yeah. I was last Qui Gon. <laughs> yeah, and then you, then you, you just have Harrison Ford on the other end of the phone doing, "Well, that was weird," and hanging up. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, I can see it now. Yeah, uh, if yes. not, it'll be in Star Wars detours, hopefully. Oh. Detour season four. Here we go. <laughs> or robot chicken. Yeah, or robot chicken. Robot chicken. Star Wars four about the Force Awakens. <laughs> yeah. What were we talking about? Right. Um, Bo-Katan. See, seen him, but Bo-Katan and their relationship. Uh, I think we we kind of got to the point saying that it was it it was convenient. Um, the the issue. I don't know whether we necessarily agree on that, but at least I said I thought the issue was that there wasn't enough depth to the storyline and. Because of the fact that the series is cancelled, was cancelled, we'll never really know yeah. if well, that story I, will ever be developed. Yeah, well, I, I very much believe that they were building up Bo-Katan, that they were trying to set her uh, as as different from the other Mandalorians, and this was part of that. And this would have played into the next arc that we would have seen involving these characters, and it would have had something to do with perhaps her, you know, embracing some of Satine's ways. Not all of them, I, I don't think so. I don't think, but 
perhaps some of them. And what about what about their inclusion in Star Wars Rebels? It's possible, absolutely possible. We have a Mandalorian. We have Sabine, who's from Mandalore. She said as much. And so we'll see. We'll see how that how that plays out. But I think there's there's a couple of stories in between uh, this and and when when we meet uh, Sabine in in Rebels. I think there's one. However, this story wraps itself up. Or actually, we should start with this Darth Maul comic. Then there's however this story wraps itself up. Then there's the Empire coming to Mandalore and setting up an academy there, which I don't think would have gone gone well with the with the Mandalorians. And then there's whatever happened to Sabine at the academy that led her to, uh, out, away from there and into well into the ghost into finding Hera. So there's the there's there's but hey, Bo-Katan could have played a role in all of those. We'll see. There's always possibility if Captain Rex can come back, then uh, then Bo-Katan can probably come back. We'll see, we'll see. Uh, well, let's uh, let's let's talk about that that big scene uh, where Maul kills. Said <laughs> I nearly said Sabine Satine. It's it's too tough. Their, their, their names are too close, and they're both man. They're both from Mandalore. It's 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 too much. Um, but so. Maul kills Satine in front of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And we talked about this scene with James Arnold Taylor and it was, it was just brilliantly done. It was, it was beautifully pulled off, beautifully active, phenomenal, phenomenal animation, great music from Kevin Kiner. And, you know, it, it was one of those moments where we really see, you know, Obi- again, something we talked about with James, Obi-Wan has faced so much tragedy in his life and it's almost like it's, it's just piling on at this point. <laughs> you know, he's just another thing, another horrible thing has happened to him. And, uh, and, and this was, was just brutal. It was so brutally pulled off. What was your take on this scene? What did you think of this scene? I, I, I just want to, I just want to highlight it because it was so well done. Oh, it was definitely one of the more poignant scenes throughout this series, let alone arc. I mean, people's thoughts towards Satine were were a bit like Marmite, I think. Um, <laughs> one's attitudes towards that flavour. Um, I don't really what put it. I'm not even going to go into the ins and outs of Marmite. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's got nothing to do with Star Wars whatsoever. But the point is, I, a lot of people really liked her, or they or they were harshly critical of her character i think and it, i i i do think that that was this, that was by the way based on the way she was portrayed uh i i thought anna graves did a fantastic job i think it was just more her demeanor and you know, the idea she was a pacifist and neutral was frustrating to people because it seemed like the natural thing to do was to get out there and fight these mandalorians but anyway yeah. that's neither here nor there it's, it's, it's really about her character in this scene and i i've I'd got emotionally invested towards the end, particularly with that discussion between Obi-Wan and Satine, her final dying words when she says, I've always loved you. It's, it's heartbreaking for Obi-Wan and, yeah. and, and Darth Maul bestows the most cruelest of, of, um, I guess, of punishments because he then says, lock him away in his cell to drown in his own misery. For Darth Maul, the purpose of that was to, turn obi-wan to the dark side i i believe that's how i interpret that scene and by killing Satine, he was hoping that rage would surface within obi-wan yeah. anger and and sheer hatred and loathing of darth maul but he didn't and obi-wan says that 
Oh, it's really those who oppose those who embrace the dark side are the strongest. Yeah. And those who actually embrace the dark side are the weakest. I, that's a great line. Um, and I think it really does sum up the Jedi's attitude towards the Sith. And in a way, you could have construed it as quite believable. I mean, what did you make of that scene as well, Dominic? But also that line yeah. that was said by Obi Wan and, and, and his discussion with Maul, which I thought was fascinating. And again, the rapport, the chemistry between Sam Witwer and James Arnold Taylor was certainly on display there. Yeah. Well, there are there are very few moments where we see Obi Wan be emotional. You know, with Anakin, he's he's emotional all the time. Even Luke is is much more emotional than than Obi Wan ever is. But there are a couple of moments. There's, of course, when Qui-Gon gets, gets stabbed. Uh, there's when he leaves Anakin for dead on the side of Mustafar, on the, on the, on the, on the, the side of the lava river on Mustafar, you know, with the, you are, you are my brother, Anakin! And, and all of that. And then there's in Empire when Luke is going to leave and Obi-Wan is, and Yoda are pleading with him not to go. And this for me is like the fourth big, obi-wan emotional scene that we've really we've really gotten and and you pointed to that line of you know those who oppose the dark side will always be stronger um was you know in that moment it was obi-wan you know he was clearly very upset he was very unhappy and and perhaps angry or you know perhaps tapping into the dark side but you you just get you see just how strongly he holds these beliefs that even in these moments where he is being tempted by these dark side emotions, he is still saying and believing. And in that moment, he, he I do think he truly believes it. Um, you well, know, so this does not relate to the fact that as Obi-Wan will naturally transcend into a real Deity-like figure as a force ghost. Yeah, these are the trials and tribulations that Obi Wan has to pass, does he not? Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. He has to go through these these moments of, in his life, and it, and it bring it, you know it all brings him to the to you know to the uh, to the to the, to the party to the, to the 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 Ewok party at the end of Return of the Jedi. You know, everything builds up to that moment. Uh, you know, bring to bring him to that to there, and and yeah, this is just another one of those those moments where. Again, Obi Wan is always being tempted, but he never g- goes over to the dark side. You know, he's he's had multiple opportunities. You know, uh, Duke who offers it to him. He's Maul is tr- constantly trying to get in his head, trying to get him to turn. It, there is this kind of sense that Obi Wan never fully that that, that Obi Wan is. You know, we talk about you know Luke Skywalker being you know the ultimate white knight. You almost kind of think that Obi Wan is that he's all he's always stayed true to the Jedi way. Yeah, and 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 this scene really embodied that, if you ask me. I could totally agree. All right, and uh, well, is there? There's one last thing. It's something we often come back to, but it, it, again, just showing the uh, the Jedi and the Senate's failures in this time period. They are enable are unable to send aid to a neutral system at this point. The war has gotten to that to that mo to that point where Obi Wan has to go undercover to do this this mission because the Senate won't even send aid to this this planet that is basically 
engulfed in civil war and the republic can't do anything and it's it, again it's just this this whole idea and i saw somebody saying you know it, it's it's interesting the way that star wars fans have kind of turned on the jedi in the last few years and you know sort of have been portraying them as less than great and i think it's it's one of those things where the jedi order is you know definitely should be targeted as you know we can we can still appreciate good individual jedi this is getting very very close to a very real world discussion that's going on um, but we can still appreciate good jedi um while criticizing the jedi order and i think this is one of those moments where you see exactly that because you know obi-wan wants to go and help but yoda and kiai mundi and everybody else can't because this the Mandalore is a neutral system. They are engaged in a war and you know, the Senate won't even send help to a planet that is engaged in a civil war because they won't fight with them in this, in this uh, massive galactic conflict conflict. And, uh, and this, I just, I think that sort of shows, shows why at times people are very critical of the Jedi order. Um, and because rightfully, rightfully so, you know, there's not also a show, Dominic, the transformation of the Jedi's mandate. Now, oh, yeah, because, of course, they're the, the keepers of peace and justice in the galaxy. And we hear of missions or well, we say we hear. I, I also partly based this on what was read in the Darth Plagueis novel. The, the Jedi were intervening, even though. Kiadi Mundi says in internal affairs, well, Jedi did do that in the past because they needed to restore the order of that particular system. Even going now, back to season one, season one, there was the whole thing on uh, on Ordo, Orto Plutonia with the Pantorans and the Tals. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's a great case in point, actually, to demonstrate that fact. And now, five seasons later, yeah, we're sitting in a Jedi War Council, a War Council room. You know, again, contradictions there with the Jedi philosophy, and and they're, and they're saying to Obi Wan, no, you, uh, Kiadi Mundi and Yoda are saying, no, you, you, we we can't intervene. This is out of our jurisdiction. But surely, part of their jurisdiction, if they were following their tenets and their tr- true beliefs and their faith, would be to mediate and help out, but. It, it, we're talking about the idea of corruption of the Jedi Order, and it's obviously a concurrent theme that comes up through the Clone Wars. And I think having something like the Clone Wars as this TV series where we see many instances of the corrupt Jedi Order is pivotal in my mind to actually fill in the gap between Episode 2 and Episode 3 yeah. to showcase why the Jedi fell, because it did seem a little bit quick, to say the least, that the public were to turn on them, or when Chancellor Palpatine proclaims a galactic empire all of the systems around him are clapping him and you're thinking hang on a minute like what, what's happened here like he's just proclaimed galactic empire on the jedi um but now we see that the public perception was already changing throughout the war um to, in, into such a way that when chancellor palpatine would say that the jedi are evil people would buy into it and if you're a neutral system Okay, you're not necessarily going to be pleased that there's been a proclamation of an empire, but at the same time, I don't know how many of them would necessarily be um, 
what's the word, disappointed or devastated that the Jedi are gone if they're not even helping them out in situations like this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I think that's it. Unless uh, there's anything else you want to bring up about these episodes, I think we can get into some quotes. Um, I don't think we've got anything to bring up on my end, so I will I will throw it over to you then, Dominic, for right. your favorite quotes. Favorite quotes. And this is the this is the point in the show where we like to shine the spotlight on some of the uh, some of the great dialogue, some of the great moments from these episodes. And these episodes really had some great moments. And uh, we've talked about a few, so I'm going to go back to revival and talk about Hondo because you cannot you cannot get enough of Hondo. Hondo always has the best quotes, and uh, you know there's some great ones. Whether it's insolence, we are pirates, we don't even know what that means, or when uh, you know he tells Obi Wan, "You handle the the crazies, and I'll handle my men," and then you know the ships fly in take a bunch of shots then hondo goes that settles it those are no longer my men so <laughs> some really great stuff from hondo and and uh yeah just the, those two in particular for, from hondo uh really stood out um but the very best one i'm taking all the hondo quotes just so you know <laughs> um was when uh maul contacts him to tell him you know some of his uh his his men or you know two of his lieutenants have already sworn allegiance to maul and 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 Hondo goes those those traitors those 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 scum I'm so proud <laughs> and 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 so betrayed <laughs> you know just really great stuff from from Jim Cummings and and the writers uh, pulling off some really really good stuff as Hondo so now I will throw it back over to you now that all the good Hondo Hondo quotes are taken uh, for something else. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you for stealing all of my revival quotes. <laughs> no, on a um, on a serious, I can't disagree with all of the quotes you've said there. So um, I'm going to choose one from Lawless then, in case all you right. steal some other ones from that one. And it's got to be the 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 encounter, the first encounter between Maul and Sidious when he says, "Oh, Darth Maul says, mm, I sense a presence, a presence I haven't felt since Master.'" And in Darth Sidious retorts, I am most impressed to see you have survived your injuries. And then Maul says, I have used your training, Master, and I have built all this in hopes of returning to your side. And then Sidious replies, hmm, how unfortunate that you are attempting to deceive me. And then Maul questions, Master. Darth Sidious then finally states in my long quotes, you have become a rival. And then <laughs> Force pushes them back against the, the wall. I was... Again, fantastic, fantastic voice acting by yeah. Sam Witwer and, of course, Ian Abercrombie. Ian Abercrombie, yes, yes. And uh, I'll throw uh, it back to you now, Dominic. Yeah, I'll go for uh, a quote we already mentioned. It was from the trailer, but uh, from that same episode when Sidious says, Remember, there can only be two, and you are no longer my apprentice. And, uh, and again, just more for, for the way that that moment played out in the trailer than even in the episode, that quote always stands out to me and is one that always, that always makes me smile, always makes me think of, of, of Celebration 6 and seeing that trailer for the first time and, and freaking out. Um, again, only to be topped three years later by Chewy. We're home. And now I'll throw it back over to you in case you got another one. 
Okay, the last one I haven't I haven't actually got the entire quote quote written because it was a very long one. But if you do recall the speech that Darth Maul gives in that tent um when Pre Vizsla or Bo Katan is questioning whether we should trust the Sith and he starts force choking her and says, you know, doubt will only lead to failure um, and then he moves on and says, you know, Count Dooku and this Sith Pretender will all fall, including Obi-Wan. Um, Kenobi, I, it just again. the Sith Pretender Dooku and all our enemies will fall. Exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Apart from if you're Sam Whitworth. Yeah, I guess. I guess, yeah, unless you're Sam Whitworth. <laughs> but I, I thought that was, again, perfectly executed. Great, great quotes in this in these episodes have you got any more that um, you want to throw out or have you have you, have you used them all up with honda wanaka I, I think i used them all up with honda wanaka there's one more um you know when when maul is is questioning the hut and the hut is it's about to kill the hut and the hut goes, goes tatooine tatooine you know they're on tatooine and Visley goes jabba's palace and maul goes so you, the only thing you can tell me is that i will find jabba at Jabba's palace. <laughs> and then he, you know, kills him. And there were some great kills in these episodes. But I'm sure those will be mentioned as we now move into our final thoughts and score out of 10 for these phenomenal, phenomenal episodes. So Kieran, I'll throw it over to you. Final thoughts on the Maul Mando's Sidious hoot and throw everything at the episode arc. Uh, final thoughts and score out of 10. <laughs> final thoughts to score out of 10. You know, uh, b- before I go into too much detail about my final thoughts, one of, one of the men, uh, things you mentioned there was there were some great kills in this particular episode, which I, I, I do agree with. Yeah. And what, one of the lines that stood out to me from, I think it was the video game Tekken, is when the voice announcer says, Finish him! And I could kind of imagine that kind of taking place <laughs> where in the mindset of these characters, like, whenever, like, pre visitors there, he's about to get his head chopped off, like, finish him! And then Darth Sidious again when he's stabbed Savage Press, and you're just thinking, ooh, that's, uh, that looks pretty painful. But yeah. anyway, I, sadly, I don't have the audio clip for that because it's, uh, it's one to listen out for. Maybe if you want, you can, you can email me about it, but, um, <laughs> Anyway, I'll actually move on to my final thoughts now. Final thoughts and square out of 10 on this particular arc. Uh, as, as we said, a phenomenal arc. I think it was really flawless in its execution revival. Up there in my top three for the best of the Clone Wars period. It was absolutely fantastic. And it's really, the, it's not just the story. The story is obviously fantastic. And we get to see the rise and the concoction of a Sith plan being put into motion. But it's the characters, it's the chemistry, and it's the way that the voice actors are able to bring these characters to life. Um, it, I thought it was, it was done absolutely magnificently. Kudos as well to, as we say, Kevin Kiner for the scores, particularly in that lawless episode there with the Sith and the Palpatine theme. When he landed on the planet, it was uh, the brief allusion to Imperial March was just brilliant. And visually animated wise, it was absolutely incredible. The lightsaber duel was never been better, really, than this. This is almost the pinnacle, the zenith of lightsaber duels in the Clone Wars. Of course, we have got um, a couple left in the Yoda arc, but just just everything about them. And for me, I always think of lightsaber duels. Visually, yes, they need to be 
yeah, they, you know, they can be like Jewel of the Fates in, in, in uh, Episode One, Obi Wan, and um, and Qui Gon v Darth Maul. But I, I, I like the fights where there's that raw emotion attached to it. Luke and Vader in Episode Six, when Luke, you know, he he goes mad at Darth Vader when he's, he uh, enunciates he's going to um, turn his sister to the dark side. You get the emotion there. It's father versus son, and I think in this particular arc we see when Sidious arrives, that connection was there. Maul versus Sidious when Savage dies, Maul goes all out for it, and that's the type of fight that I really get invested in. So kudos to the Comores team on all fronts. Ten out of ten for this arc. Dominic, over to you for your final thoughts and score out of ten. Yeah, for me, I, uh, I, I can't help but echo some of the things you said. It's a great visuals, great music, great uh, performances all around. Uh, as as you mentioned, some some great kills. Uh, you forgot the uh, five five Black Sun warriors and one lightsaber throw from Savage Press. That was something, you know. How did they? How could they have topped Ahsoka killing four Mandos with one swing? Well, Savage throwing his lightsaber to take out five members of the Black Sun all at once. Also, really interesting to see Savage turning back into his former self when Sidious killed him. What does that mean? I'm sure we'll get into that more when we get into the Darth Maul Son of Dathomir comic. Yes, we will be talking about that as well as all of the uh, all the other unfinished and bonus content and everything that was released following the completion of the series of course we could we couldn't let us let it pass we couldn't let it pass but um also just yeah like you said really really great lightsaber fights um the maul versus vizsla thing was unlike anything we'd ever seen before and for me it was really the the best lightsaber fight from the entire series as cool as sidious versus maul and, and savage was or sidious versus versus Yoda in the uh, the Yoda arc was that one really was the very very best. And yes, I too will give this episode a 10 out of 10. And I'm sure if we had asked James he would have given this a 10 out of 10 too. So we'll give it like the 30 out of 30 that we that we like to give these episodes. Um of course again we want to thanks thank, No one's here to challenge that. Yeah, we we want to thank uh, James Arnold Taylor again. You can follow him on Twitter at JAT actor and like I said check out uh, a certain point of view on the comic channel on YouTube. And uh, if you're down in Florida or you're heading down there, or you're thinking about going down there, uh, be sure to hit up Star Wars Weekends at uh, Disney Hollywood Studios at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. James is hosting the event there, and you should definitely check it out. We saw him doing his hosting thing at Celebration uh, Anaheim just, just over a month ago now, and he was brilliant at that. And uh, there's no reason... Um, well, there's no reason to believe he would be any 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 different <laughs> at Star Wars Weekends. In fact, he'll probably be better. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Check it out. James is great. And follow him on Twitter. Uh, and thank him for joining us on this episode. So, I'll wrap things up for us here. If you want to hear more from Kieran and I, be sure to check out The Watchers of Westeros. That's our Game of Thrones podcast. Uh, we've got new episodes coming out every week uh, for all of the... Uh, for all of the... Uh, Game of Thrones episodes that are, are are airing for season five. So by the time you're hearing this, the uh, sixth episode will have aired, and we'll be probably recording the episode to talk about that. So you can find that just by searching for the Watchers of Westeros on Facebook, iTunes, Twitter, and all the places you normally get podcasts. Kieran, do you want to let the people know what is coming up on Expression FM this week? 
I can indeed, Dominic. Expression FM is continuing forth with its traditional shows on the schedule. We've got the Cricket Varsity coming up soon, which is a big university event, which is uh, going to be broadcast by Expression Sports, and it's going to detail old alumni members of the cricket team going up against the current cricket team at the university. Um, I will say that this event, if you were a cricketer, would maybe involve a drink or two. So (laughs) in terms of the coverage, we won't be indulging in anything so malign as that. However, I do also have my own show on Mondays from 6 until 7 p.m. GMT time. It's called Doug and Stance Anthems, and it's spread across the board, concentrating on all types of dance music. So if you're interested in the contemporary classics you'll hear at your local nightclubs or or even at your school discos then um you are more than welcome to join in and listen because this is this is the show for you then the way you can listen in is on our website which is www.expression.fm we you can also follow us on twitter our twitter handle is at expression fm and you can also like our facebook page which is www.facebook.com slash Expression FM. That is expression with an X. Dominic, I'll throw it over to you to disclose your own. Yes, as, as always, uh, always, as always, every week there are new episodes of the Star Wars Underworld podcast. That's where we break down all of the latest breaking Star Wars news and discuss the latest releases in Star Wars media. That includes Rebels episodes, books and comics, and, and all kinds of fun stuff. So definitely want to check that out. Uh, our latest episode is out talking about the final day of Star Wars Celebration Anaheim, where we talk about... Uh, well, the, the standalone films, or the anthology films, I guess I should say. So we talk about that Rogue One trailer, as well as the news about Mr. Josh Trank and uh, everything that went down with that. And uh, next week, we'll be playing some catch-up as we catch up on a lot of the stories we missed uh, while we were ca- covering Star Wars Celebration Anaheim. So that's bound to be a, lot, uh, a fun show. We've got some new segments we'll be debuting, and so you don't want to miss that. The show is recorded live Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on channel1138.com and released the following day on iTunes. Speaking of iTunes, you can subscribe to this podcast and the Star Wars Underworld podcast by subscribing to the Star Wars Underworld on iTunes. You get both shows for the price of one, and that price is absolutely free. So subscribe over there, and if you have time, leave a review. We especially appreciate the good ones. Also, you can follow the show on Twitter at TCW Strikes Back. You can follow me personally at DominicJ25. You can follow Kieran at CDuggan6. Be sure to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Clone Wars Strikes Back. Uh, if you want to keep a little Clone Wars in your news feed, that is the page to like. Plus, you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back in about two weeks' time when we will talk about the Ahsoka arc. Big changes in store for the Clone Wars, so you do not want to miss that so be sure to tune in then um, and in between shows be sure to hit up starwarsunderworld.com for all the latest breaking star wars news including the force awakens rogue one star wars rebels star wars battlefront and so much more so thank you everybody for listening until next time may the force be with you